0: Really exciting. It's an honor to open up the show here today. Uh, I'm Stephen Johnson. And I thought what I would do is talk a little bit about the past and then talk a little bit about the future. And I thought I, I it was appropriate, as, as any good interaction design conference should, uh, to start the day with cholera, uh, in part because I think the, the story I want to talk about, which is based on the, the, the story in my last book, The Ghost Map has a lot of relevance to our particular point today, uh, particularly with reference to the growing geographic web that a lot of us are involved in building out. And also because just, you know, it's a great way to start the morning with a rousing speech about intestinal disease. So that's it. just seems to me to be the appropriate way to begin. So uh, I, I want to take us back to London in 1854. Uh, the largest city in the world... Uh, the largest city the world had ever seen, and a city that was literally mired in its own filth. Uh, it was an incredibly disgusting place to live uh, in 1854. I'll just just to entertain you, I'll read one quote here um, from the kind of social historian and journalist Henry Mayhew. Um, that he wrote in 1851, visiting the a site of a of a cholera outbreak. Um, As we passed along the reeking banks of the sewer, the sun shone upon a narrow slip of the water. In the bright light, it appeared the color of strong green tea and positively looked as solid as black marble in the shadow. Indeed, it was more like watery mud than muddy water, and yet we were assured this was the only water the wretched inhabitants had to drink. As we gazed in horror at it, we saw drains and sewers emptying their filthy contents into it, we saw a whole tier of doorless privies in the open road, common to men and women, built over it. We heard bucket after bucket of filth splash into it, and the limbs of the vagrant boys bathing in it seemed by pure force of contrast white as marble. This is the kind of stuff they left out of the Masterpiece Theatre vision of London in the Victorian era, right? Uh, this was this was everyday life, and what it created, is what you basically had here was a Victorian city living with an Elizabethan public health infrastructure. We had no waste removal um, no basic public health system, and it created an environment that was incredibly ripe for disease, particularly the the deadly disease of cholera, which had come to London first in 1832 and would basically run through the city in waves every kind of four or five years, and twenty or 30,000 people would die uh, in the space of three or four months normally over the course of the summer. The other thing that happened was it created an environment, and this is very crucial to the history of London and, uh, and the history of all urban systems at this particular point in time, it created an environment that was incredibly smelly. Uh, Every kind of contemporary account of London during this period talks about the overarching kind of stench that attacked you every time you walked through the streets of the city. And this led to one of the great errors in the history of science and history of medicine, um, what became known as the miasma theory of disease. The belief was that people were being poisoned, and particularly people were contracting cholera, because of this smell, because of something in the air that was causing people to get sick and, and, and to die. Um, this is Edwin Chadwick, the pioneering kind of public health reformer who is one of the great champions of the miasma theory. Uh, the quote you saw there before, all smell is disease, was from him. That was how kind of extreme the miasma theory got. If it, if it was smelly, uh, it was causing you to get sick. And of course, we know now that in fact the theory was dead wrong. However offensive the smells of London were, they weren't actually making anybody sick. What was happening is the water supply had been contaminated. Cholera is, is a disease you, you get when the cholera bacteria infects the water supply, um, and you often get it in, period, in places where there are large human settlements, where they haven't yet figured out how to separate the water supply from the waste systems. And that was London in 1854. So the story then really begins, and I, I know some of you have read the book, and I know some of you know a little bit of the story, so I'm going to tell it relatively quickly and, and then talk a little bit more about what it means, the story really starts in August 28th, 1854, when a popular public pump at 40 Broad Street in Soho, London, the most densely populated neighborhood in all of London at that point, a kind of an island of working class poverty in the middle of kind of more posh neighborhoods around it, a public watering hole at 40 Broad Street gets contaminated with the bacteria that causes cholera. And in the morning of April of August 28th, a little girl living right next door to the pump gets sick, um, dies shortly thereafter. And in the next 10 days, the most intense concentrated outbreak of cholera sweeps through this neighborhood, literally decimates the neighborhood, right? 10% of the neighborhood dies over the course of the next two weeks. Far more would have died if the rest of the neighborhood hadn't basically emptied out and fled. Um, it's an incredibly devastating, incredibly terrifying uh, moment in the history of London, um, scenes that we really don't experience that, that much more in the developed world of entire families dying together alone in their little one-room flats over the course of, of 24 hours. Just an incredibly tragic and terrifying story in the, in the history of urban life. But what's so interesting about this story is that actually that devastation, that tragedy ends up leading to a great breakthrough. In a strange way, this is a a very optimistic story because of what happens next. And the way that it's conventionally told is that a brilliant man, a a polymath, um, one of the great minds of the 19th century, John Snow, hits upon the solution to the riddle of cholera and figures out that, in fact, cholera is not in the air, is not a product of miasma, but is in fact a problem of contaminated water supplies. And he hits upon it by analyzing the deaths in this particular outbreak. Um, And he ends up creating a famous map that showcases all the deaths and points a finger conclusively to this contaminated pump. Now, to some extent that's true, and, and the way that the story is told, it's often told as a story of both a kind of great scientific epiphany and also as a story of great information design. Tufte wrote about it uh, twice uh, in his early influential books on information uh, visualization tools. So we have both kind of science and we have kind of graphic design, mapping, cartography, information design, uh, all bound up in the story, and those are important roles, but I think that there's something else that we should stress and something else that's directly relevant to the kinds of projects we're working on today that I was trying to kind of get to when I wrote this book, which is that, this is also a story about social systems. This is also a story about a neighborhood. This is also a story about amateurs who live in that neighborhood who have a very local, we might say now hyper-local kind of expertise about what's going on in their communities, who are able to share that expertise and share that information and visualize it in new ways. And in doing so, they changed the world. So that's the angle that I think we need to, and when we revisit this, this great an you know, extraordinary moment in in the history of London. We need to approach it from that angle, and that's what I really want to talk about today. So, so Snow was, in his own way, he was kind of an amateur. Um, he was a he was a physician. He was a local physician working on the on the edges of Soho. It's crucial that he was a resident of the neighborhood, working with the residents of the neighborhood. But he was a he was a classic dabbler. He was a classic kind of nineteenth century Victorian figure who was just interested in a million things and. And four or five years before, he'd gotten interested in cholera and the problem of cholera, and he started kind of speculating on it. And uh, before long, he developed this this theory that, in fact, it was a problem of contaminated water and not miasma. Some people think that he got the theory out of this particular case. Actually, he had the theory before, but he couldn't convince anybody of it. So he published a number of articles saying, listen, the public health authorities have this totally wrong. Uh, This is an issue that we need to solve by dealing with the water system. This is not something that's in the air. Nobody listened to him. But when he got word that there was this terrible outbreak that was devastating his own community, he was one of the few people probably in that community who saw this as an opportunity. He thought that concentrated an outbreak suggested that there was probably a single point source to this epidemic. There was probably a single place where people were getting contaminated water. And if he could find that, maybe he could, he could finally make a convincing case for the waterborne theory of cholera. And so he went straight into the heart of the belly of the beast straight into the heart of this terrible epidemic as the rest of the neighborhood was evacuating. Snow went in and started knocking on doors, started asking people, where had they gotten their water? And over time, within a couple of days, in fact, all the evidence started to point to this pump outside 40 Broad Street. And so in the days and weeks after, he started to try and figure out how he was going to represent all this information that he'd gathered. And so in in the end, he built a couple of maps. Um, this is the, the pretty much the last version and, and the most famous one. Um, there are a couple of things that are, that are exceptional about this map. The, the, the basic idea here is each bar represents a death, right? So this is the pump here at Forty Broad, and you can see the concentration of death around the pump. And you can see how it fades. It gets less severe as you get further and further away from the pump. Uh, so instantly right there, you, you get the sense there's something fundamentally wrong here with this with this area. There's something contaminated. Now, the, what's interesting about this is people tend to focus on that particular part of the information design, the idea of, of having these black bars represent deaths so that you can see the pattern being formed. Um, but in fact, that was not actually the most original and not, in fact, the most convincing part of the map, because people had done this kind of map before on a couple of occasions. This is certainly the most famous version of this kind of this kind of design. But the thing that he did that was, really, uh, that was really clever, and that was much more convincing, is this line that goes around the edge of the map. And this line is basically an attempt to represent time geographically here. This, the space enclosed inside this kind of wavering line is the space of residences that were closer, that were faster, to walk to this pump than it was to walk to any other pump in the surrounding communities. So, given the kind of crooked streets and the kind of foot traffic getting there, if you lived inside this border, you were more likely to go here for your water than you were to go anywhere else. And what you see is every, every space inside that area, even over here in this kind of unusual space, there, uh, there's an intense concentration of, uh, of death. And this is not what you would expect if there was some kind of miasmatic force emanating in the air from this particular spot. So, if this was just a particularly smelly pump, for instance, if there was just a, a poisonous stench coming out of this pump, you would see this concentration here, but you wouldn't see this concentration here. So, those two elements. Actually, tufty doesn't even mention this line uh, in in uh, in his treatment of uh, of the map, which is pretty pretty interesting that he kind of missed that. Um, so, he builds this map, and this is a this is a great moment in the history of information design. There's no question about it. But there are other elements too that I think are just as important, and one of them is that. Snow had a crucial collaborator who's been almost entirely ignored in, in almost every account of uh, of the outbreak, and and that's the, the Reverend Henry Whitehead, who was at the time a 25, 26 year old kind of local vicar. This is him much later in life, I hope. Uh, it's a good looking good looking beard. Uh, and, and Whitehead was just one of these, you know, he was just a classic networker. He knew everyone in the neighborhood. He was, he was the local vicar who would come over and have tea with you. He was the local vicar who would hang out in the pub. Um, he was just a, a, a classic kind of connector figure. Um, and he got involved in this case because he heard word that Snow had, had basically fingered the pump as, as the culprit in this outbreak... And he said, well, listen, I know this neighborhood. I know all the people in this neighborhood. And I know that's the best water in Soho. It had this reputation as being the finest water around town, in part because apparently it had a, a slight carbonated um, kind of fizz to it, which apparently was a sign that there was some extra organ- uh, uh, decaying organic matter in the water. Um, a little less appetizing, if you know that. But people liked it because it had this little little kind of soda water-like sparkle to it. So so people... people uh, people would go to this pump, you know, from from quite far away. And so Whitehead said, I'm pretty sure that I can disprove this theory um, just by going around and talking to the people that I know. And what Whitehead had was uh, you know, an unusual access to people and an ability to go in and sit down and talk to people at length because he knew them better than Snow did. And what often happened was the, the parents would say, well, no, no, we don't drink out of that pump. And then after a long period of, you know, kind of conversation, it would turn out that the eight-year-old had gone and gotten water from that pump um, that morning and the parents hadn't known about it. So More and more, the more and more people that Whitehead talked to, the more he found there was always some thread connecting back to this this pump. And the other thing Whitehead was able to do is track down the people who had left. Because he had this kind of thick social network um, in the neighborhood, he was able to find all these people who had actually left that Snow was not able to get um, get in contact with. And so Whitehead ended up being crucial to the investigation. In fact, he was the one... Who ended up finding the kind of the patient zero, this baby who would gotten sick on August 28th, um, uh, right across from the pump? Uh, Snow did not find this child, and in fact, in the in the, in the kind of ultimate argument that was made for the waterborne theory, built around this particular case and built around the map, the existence of this patient zero was what led the authorities to go and dig up the connection between the, uh, the you know basically cesspool at the bottom of this house and the pump, and find that there was decaying brickwork connecting the two. And so the real kind of linchpin in the argument did not come from Snow. It came from Henry Whitehead, who had no expertise. No, he wasn't even a man of science in any any way. What he was was a local. He was an amateur on the ground in his community who knew his community, who had a certain kind of local knowledge that he was able to share. And with Snow, with Snow's expertise, with Snow's information design, was able to turn it into something that, that literally changed the world. And the other thing that's crucial in, in our context today, that I think has been ignored in the telling you the story, is that they had access to open data archives that had been created by William Farr in the, in the preceding uh, decade. And what, what Farr decided to do is to figure out this way of, he figured it would be very useful to not just report mortality data for the city, Um, That had been going on for a long time, people saying, okay, X number of people died this week, X number of people died in in these neighborhoods. But he started asking for much more precise information, both the exact location where they died and the cause of the disease and a couple of other things that, that he added. And he would release this information every two weeks. So suddenly there was this, in a sense, kind of open source data that was out there that people could get to that had a standardized kind of format. So people could say, okay, I'm looking for deaths of cholera by neighborhood. And they could get that information once every two weeks. It was incredibly hard to get that. It was basically impossible to get that without just walking around the city, talking to people, talking to individual physicians on your own. Suddenly, the city was producing that as a standard bit of information with the, with the premise that if they released it into the wild, other people would do interesting things with it. They would take that data and figure out new, kind of new things to build on top of that data, new interpretations. And that's precisely what Snow and Whitehead did. So they supplemented their kind of shoe leather, leather detective work, um, their knocking on doors with this public data that had become available in the, in the, in the last 10 years. And they, and they built this, this map out of it. In a sense, it's, you know, it's the first mashup, right? Um, so, and, and the, the other thing conceptually here that's really important is, is this idea of, of the long zoom, uh, of being able to connect different scales of experience and build kind of causal explanations about the links that, that unite them, right? So Snow approached the problem. He, he actually was very interested in trying to identify this bacteria. He looked with his microscope, you know, trying to see the actual organism that he was kind of in search of, but the technology of the day made it very hard to see things that small. But he was thinking on the scale of microorganisms, but he was also thinking on the scale of individual lives, just as Whitehead was. They were thinking on the scale of social networks. They were thinking on the scale of entire neighborhoods. In fact, Snow eventually um, also built these elaborate maps of the entire kind of public water system in London, which are in some ways even more, influ- uh, more important maps um, because they showed the, the broader patterns of water distribution in London. So he was thinking on this kind of macro-urban scale as well. And so the ability... To kind of zoom in and out between all of these different levels and to build this kind of bird's eye view of, of all this behavior and all these decisions and all these kind of patterns of lives and deaths and to learn from it, that's an incredible intellectual skill, that ability to kind of move across scales and across disciplines and synthesize all of that. I mean, this is, this is you know, in a sense, a kind of a, a social network of dead people, Right? They're, they're united... No, I mean, I don't, I don't mean that kind of lightly. I mean, they're united by, you know, two shared interests, right? A shared kind of community. They're geographically connected to each other. And by a shared interest in the Broad Street pump. And by looking at and, and, and kind of building out the model of that network and by representing it in a, in a novel way, Snow and Whitehead were able to, to crack this case and, and eventually convincingly turn the tide towards the waterborne theory of cholera, and it's important to note that cholera came back to London um, in a serious outbreak form about ten years later, and by that point the public health authorities had officially kind of endorsed the waterborne theory and they treated it as a a problem of of contaminated water supplies. They had already started building the sewers, one of the great engineering achievements of the 19th century, um, underground, so people don't celebrate it as much as they should, um, to deal precisely with this problem. after that epidemic in 1866, that was the last time that cholera came to London. It has not been back since. So this this was the case where this, this social network, this group of people, this information design, this map, this open data standard came together and literally changed the world. And every other city around the world has slowly been adopting these principles of kind of public health organization, of waste removal, of dealing with clean water supplies because of... Because of this map and because of the men and the intelligence that, that went into this went into this map. Um, this is I was thinking today that I should have called the book the The Wisdom of Dead Crowds, right? This is <laughs> these are all these people who, who in a sense died um, in this incredibly tragic way, but somehow by looking at the pattern of their deaths they were able to to change the world for the better, right? So this is the legacy I think that that I think we have to think about today. And we're at, at a fantastic kind of turning point in the, in the evolution of, of this technology um, and of our opportunities to, to deal with all these things. So I, w- I want to walk through a, a few kind of basic points about the geographic web. Um, because this is this is a really exciting time, I think. Um, in some ways, it reminds me a bit of the, uh, of the early days of the web. When we think back of... Uh, to, to all the things that happened, all the innovation that happened, um, just the tremendous kind of breakthrough of, of new ideas, new possibilities that happened when the web came along. One of the fundamental questions I think we have to ask ourselves is, why did it happen? Right? Why did we have uh, so much innovation in such a short amount of time? What was it that made the, the explosion of interest in the web possible? And I think one of the things that you have to say about it that, that maybe isn't said enough is that we had a standardized format for the location of pages, right? We had these URLs that you could point to, and you could reliably say, this page exists here. And if you build another page that links to that page, pretty much you can be confident that you can go from one page to the other. And so much comes out of, obviously, Google and PageRank comes out of the ability to to have these standardized addresses for, for information. That you can build things on top of You can build stacks on top of that information because you know where the information is, and you have a standardized way of kind of addressing it. And I think the the, the fundamental idea that is so exciting about the geographic web now and, and all the things that are happening is that we are now starting to get standardized geographic addresses for information online. Then when you start to agree upon a set of formats for the real world location of pages, the content uh, of the page is talking about something in physical geographic space that that 's going to open up is already opening up uh, a series of, of of amazing possibilities that we 're all just kind of starting to explore um, and so this this is this is the the great opportunity we have we have in front of us right now, um, and I think it 's going to be as, as important and as revolutionary not just in terms of virtual space but in terms of real world world space what we 're starting to build is in a sense interfaces for for urban spaces, and rural spaces, and suburban spaces. Um, information layered over the actual world. So it's very exciting. And what we have, in a sense, are three elements that were crucial to the story of, of cholera in 1854. We've got local expertise on the ground. We've got people, local bloggers, writing about their communities, writing about their neighborhoods, writing about what's going on around the corner. Um, the Henry Whiteheads and John Snows of today um, and what's fabulous about these people is that they truly know their communities better than the so-called experts. When we think about the debate about bloggers and journalism, say, for instance, has been going on you know, for the last five or six years, so much of that debate has, has been focused on the political sphere in part because political blogs were one of the first parts of the blogosphere that got, got attention and they really got some kind of critical mass. And so we've had endless debates of, you know, should bloggers have journalistic credentials? What makes them different from the experts who write for the op-ed pages and pontificate on television, all that kind of stuff. But all of those questions, wherever you stand on that debate, all of those questions kind of die off when you get down to the level of neighborhoods and communities, the hyper-local level. Because when you're trying to figure out what's going on at the science program uh, at your kid's uh, school that, that he's entering next year, you don't want to go to the education beat reporter for the local city paper to find out about it. You want to go to the parents um, whose kid, kids were in the program last year. Those are the true experts, right? And everybody, every neighborhood is filled with people who have that kind of expertise. It's just that most of that knowledge and information was, in a sense, kind of trapped in their minds and in their kind of word of mouth networks. And what started to happen with the with the local blogosphere, with place bloggers, is that those people now have a megaphone. Those people now have a voice, and they're able to talk to their to their kind of wider community in a new way with these new tools. But what's also exciting is now because of open information standards about how we geographically tag that information, and open standards about how we can map it and and the tools from Yahoo and Google and other places that let people map things without having to buy incredibly expensive cartographic software um, or do it themselves, um, there's this opportunity now for that local expertise to circulate through people's neighborhoods in entirely new ways. We can really invent a whole new way of letting neighborhoods talk to each other and share the knowledge that that they have. And we have these new ways of visualizing, new ways of thinking about all that data, new ways of mapping it. All of that is right there at our fingertips. So it's an incredibly exciting time. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how we've taken th- these ideas and kind of animated them at Outside In, which is the company that I started right as I was finishing Ghost Map. Um, and it was just this process where I was writing the book, I would, I would kind of wake up in the morning and go sit down to work, and I would go and look around the web. And what I found myself doing compulsively again and again is going to the, the local bloggers in my neighborhood going to, you know, these Brooklyn bloggers. It turns out, actually, that Brooklyn, where I live, is the leading capital of, of local bloggers, uh, as far as we know, in, in the world. We did, a, we did a survey, at least in the United States, of the, the bloggiest neighborhoods uh, in the country, which we did mostly because we think bloggiest is a word that people should use more. Um, and it turned out, of the top ten neighborhoods, you know, four of them were in Brooklyn, um, because they're just a, they're, it's, it's a very dense community, um, there's a lot of change happening, gentrification tends to, to cause people to blog more, and, uh, and there are a lot of writers with too much time on their hands uh, in, in the community as well. So that, all that kind of is a perfect storm for, for bloggers. Um, so so as I was finishing the book, I was thinking, gosh, you know, there are all these people who remind me of, of Whitehead, and there's all this interesting stuff happening, But but there's no place to go where you can actually say, I want to see everything that's been said in, in traditional news or through the blogosphere about schools within one mile of my house. Like that's a very intuitive kind of query that you should be able to do. You should be able to say, I want to filter this by proximity to me. Um, but it's one of these things that Google can't do. Google can show you, you know, dry cleaners near your house, but it can't tell you what people are actually saying um, within ten blocks of your house or five blocks of your house. And yet that's the way we organize the world, right? We organize the world spatially. Um, things that are closer to us mean more than things that are further away. And so, in a sense, there was this imbalance here where we had all these amazing tools that we accept and that we kind of take for granted, and yet something that is so intuitive and important and essential to the way that you organize your life and think about your life was something that technology wouldn't do. And so we decided to to create Outside In, which basically is is mapping all of these conversations that are happening in blogs and newspapers and tagging each little bit of information information with as precise geographic data as we can. Um, so we have pages dedicated to specific places, to schools, um, to parks, to restaurants, um, to dangerous intersections. Um, we found everything that we can find from the blogosphere and from news sources. And we've kind of mapped it to those pages. We've mapped also topic pages so you can find out everything about somebody gets you know, murdered in your neighborhood. There's a topic page for that person. Um, you know, but there's also neighborhood pages and and topic pages for each neighborhood. So it's this huge array of pages. All of it kind of organized out of this information that's circulating around from local blogs and, and news sources. Um, and so we're doing more and more that we've been doing it for about two years now. And one of the things we're really intrigued with is getting tools to make this easier and easier for people who are creating this kind of content, both for for publishers and for bloggers. Um, so the people who want to to make the kinds of maps that that Snow made. how can we make it easier for them to do that and, and to organize their content without having to think about GRSS or latitude and longitude and things like that so we, we've actually just um, this is something I haven't shown before these are kind of uh, some early designs for this product geo toolkit which we have kind of in, in alpha right now um, and basically this is a tool that lets anybody who publishes something who has a feed of any kind go in make sure that their content is being geotagged properly, it's kind of a geo SEO you can think about it that way um, and then it basically gives you kind of geo-analytics um, for how your content is existing in the world, right? So this is an example of kind of a map that shows you the places that you've written about. Um, but it doesn't just show you the places as little pushpins on the map. Because what we want to do is show you, in a sense, the, the kind of the social networks of conversation around the places you've written about and how much you're dominating that conversation. So this is; these are all the places that you've written about. The overall size of this little pie shows the overall volume of conversation about that place. And then the, the division between the kind of the orange and blue shows you the orange is your stuff, the blue is everybody else's stuff. And so you can quickly see, okay, you've written three stories about East River State Park. In total stories, you've, there, there are 20 out there. And then you can just click on that place page name, and you'll see all the stories that have been written. You'll see that kind of community that's kind of been built around that particular place. So in a sense, you, you can see your kind of mind share of a given place in, in, in your world. Um, so, that, so we're building these things that have stats that show you, we're, we're going to be able to set it up so you have rankings within your neighborhood so that you can say proudly that you are the number three crime blogger in Park Slope um, hopefully that will set off a lot of competition uh, between people but also we're analyzing all the feeds that are coming in and we're looking for place names, we're looking for neighborhood names, we're looking for places and we're automatically geotagging for people, we've built an algorithm that's getting smarter and smarter, detecting these places and automatically adding that uh, kind of machine-readable geostamps to those pieces of data. Now, you can correct it, you can fix it, and you can make it smarter by contributing to it, um, but it's a tool that lets you actually see the the geotags that have been attached and, and to maybe refine them if you want. So all of that stuff is is kind of built into GeoToolkit. At the same time, we want to make it easier for people who aren't necessarily bloggers, who aren't necessarily actually feeding information into the system, to see all of this and come up with kind of new ways to to visualize this. And so this is the... The product that we launched uh, this summer, which we're really proud of, which is Radar. And what Radar is trying to do is, is to do this idea of the, of the long zoom. So what Radar shows you is, you, you give Radar your exact address, and it will show you what's happening within a thousand feet of you. And then there's another layer of zoom, and it'll show you what's happening in the neighborhood you're currently in. And then there's another layer of zoom, and it'll show you what's happening in the city. And then you can track specific places that you're interested in, even if they're in other cities. So you can say, okay, I'm really interested in this uh, development in, in Manhattan, even though I live in Brooklyn, or I'm really interested in this hotel that's opening in San Francisco. And so anything that comes up about that, uh, about that place will show up on your radar as well. So what we're trying to do here is enable people to actually see what's happening in their world, particularly that 1,000-foot view, because that 1,000-foot view is is the scale of, of true meaning. Anything that happens within 1,000 feet of your house or where you're standing is almost inevitably going to be interesting to you because it's so close. Um, and one of the things we're, we're starting to do is actually parse Twitters as well. So we're just watching the, the kind of Twitter stream, and when we see people mention neighborhoods, we'll pull those out, and then we'll do automatic place detection based on those neighborhoods. And so in this case, somebody has mentioned they're looking for a nice Park Slope restaurant um, and they mentioned Blue Ribbon, which is a restaurant at Park Slope. And so we've taken that, and then anybody who lives within 1,000 feet of Blue Ribbon is going to see that in their radar. Anybody who's let us know that they're standing within 1,000 feet of Blue Ribbon is going to see that in their radar. They're going to see that in the neighborhood Park Slope view of radar. So it's this ability to kind of send a message out to the community around a specific place in this entirely distributed way without having to think about your location at all. And what's important here is that the, the geographic information here is not where the Twitterer is. It's not where Sammy Sanchez is when he sends his Twitter. The geographic information that's relevant here is Blue Ribbon, right? Or Park Slope. So they could be Twittering this you know, from, from, from Manhattan or from San Francisco, um, and the GPS coordinates of the Twitter is not going to be relevant here. What you have to be able to do is understand that Blue Ribbon is a restaurant in Park Slope, and that's the relevant kind of geographic frame for it. And so that's, that's where we're we're trying to do. Now, the other thing that I think is crucial, and, and maybe I, I guess I could say is it's not that it's disappointing, but I think there's more to do, is that we've got this great opportunity. But if you look at you know, the vast majority of the, of the kind of startups and, and kind of privately funded companies that are trying to kind of explore the possibilities of the geo-web, there's this hugely disproportionate emphasis on finding restaurants. And finding local businesses, right? Um, and, and in fact, you know, the kinds of queries that I was talking about are show me what's happening within one mile of my house. That's the kind of stuff that Google does well. You can see all the restaurants within one mile of your house. And there, there are a lot of great services. I mean, Yelp is a fantastic site and it's doing really innovative things. But there's been this heavily strong emphasis on reviewing, finding local businesses, um, finding a dry cleaner, finding an Indian food place. Um, and I think while that's immensely valuable, if you think about your life, if you think about all the things that have a geographic frame to it in your community, in your neighborhood, all the events that happen to you that, that are meaningful in a geographic way, the, the percentage of those that are about finding a restaurant or a dry cleaner, I would say, would be vanishingly small. Um, but there's a huge number of other things that happen in our world that are are grounded in location. Um, and th- and then I, th- I think we're spending too much time focusing on this one small slice of the problem and, and not enough to, on on this big open open space that, that hasn't yet been fully explored. Um, so, so our philosophy at Outside In has been to to certainly let people blog about a restaurant and have it show up on Outside In and, and ask somebody for restaurant recommendations as in that Twitter. But um, we're trying to do more than that as well and to have it be whatever anybody is interested in. If there's a cholera outbreak in your neighborhood, you, know, you hopefully you'd be able to use Outside In. Hopefully it wouldn't happen to you, but you never know. Um, so I'll give you just one example of this. Um, and, and that is, we uh, we've set up radar so that you can get email alerts if there's anything within a thousand feet of you that comes over the transom, right? And so I was out, my family and I left the city for about six weeks and we were out uh, on the eastern end of Long Island, but I was getting all these, I kind of I left my radar location uh, back at home, and so I was getting these pretty much daily alerts of things that, was, that were happening within a thousand feet of my house. And it was a little bit like having kind of a security camera installed in your neighborhood, uh, right around your house. You're just, just the kind of daily buzz of things that were happening. A place was opening or closing or somebody got mugged or somebody, you know, a house got sold. All that kind of buzz that you get when you're, when you're at home and talking to people, I was able to get kind of remotely. And one day, uh, in the, in the middle of the summer, um, I got this in, in my mail. Uh, it said, uh, this item just popped in your outside in radar, um, van on fire in front of dizzy's. Dizzy's is you know a block is this restaurant a block from my house um, so it's like okay that sounds a little disturbing and so within about two minutes I had this um, in fact another description said a van had exploded uh, a block from my house which sounded even more startling um, and this is the kind of thing where it, it was fine there wasn't really a threat but you know there's a giant flaming van uh, within a block of my house I'd, I'd kind of like to know about it and and what I what I think is striking about this is The chain that got this picture to me, right? The chain was somebody just in a message board posts something um, and says there's a van on on fire outside of Dizzy's. They don't think about geotags. They don't think about GRSS. They don't think about lat-longs. They don't think about any of that stuff. They're not using geotoolkit. They're not using any of that stuff. They just say that. And We're watching that feed, we pick up Dizzy's, we tag it with the exact location of Dizzy's, and then we update everybody's radar, and the Dizzy's page, and the Park Slope page with that information, and then anybody who subscribed to an email alert gets that stuff pushed out to them. And there I have this picture of this van in such a short amount of time. And this is exactly the kind of story that is relevant to me on the thousand foot scale but that unless this van turns out to be you know, some kind of terrorist plot or sets fire to a larger building, is never going to show up in the local newspaper. In fact, it will never even be reported, likely, right? But it's relevant because I'm so close to it. And so it requires this kind of social web of people on the ground in these neighborhoods who are writing about these things, and it requires tools to grab that information and aggregate it and make sense of it and share it and amplify it. And, and the opportunity of, of doing that, of creating new ways to have that information circulate in physical spaces to connect people, to not use the web as a mechanism to kind of escape the real world, but instead to use the web as a, as a way of enhancing the real world, to make you feel more connected to your community, even if you're 200 miles away from it. That's the, the great opportunity for it. And I, I always think about this line that I, that I wrote about in my second book, Emergence, from, from Jane Jacobs. Um, it's one of the great Urban theorists and, and inspirations for me. And in her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, she talks about the, the, the power of, of, of great, largely pedestrian-based cities. And, and their often surprising safety um, comes from the, the number of eyes on the street. The number of people who are members of the community who are out there every day just looking at things. And she was writing about it in the context of safety, that streets that are busy tend to be safer because they're just, you don't need police, you just need to have people walking around and kind of keeping keeping a, keeping an eye on things to make cities feel safe. And it's, it's deserted cities, it's cities where nobody's out, um, it's back alleys where nobody's watching, that's where crime tends to happen. Um, but I think about those eyes on the street in the context of, of the geo-web, because What's fascinating about this opportunity is the, the people who are sitting there looking at that van on fire, the people who are sitting there looking at the, the new restaurant that's opening up, the people who are sitting there you know, looking at a, a new brownstone that's, that, that's just sold, um, who are talking about crimes that have happened or talking about what's going on in their public school. Those eyes and the intelligence behind those eyes are what make neighborhoods great. And for the first time, I think, in, in, you know, in the history of recent technology, Um, we have the opportunity to take new technology and make that intelligence more connected, more grounded, and to make that vision clearer. Thank you very much.